Well, good evening, family campers. Did you have a great first full day at IRBC? I can see looking out across the crowd, those of you that wore sunscreen and those that should have. Um, where's Job Ackerman? Where are you, Job? There's my friend Job. Well, in this light, you can't tell. He turned a different shade of red today. And uh, we, we have the privilege of eating at their table, the whole McCool, McCool clan. We are the clan McCool. McOdal, I think, is what we'll start calling it. So we combine the two names together. But uh, I know that there are others that are like that, that have got a little bit of sun. I got a little bit of sun myself today. Wasn't it a perfect day? Absolutely gorgeous day. Great day to be at IRBC enjoying family camp. I heard from one of the kiddos uh, at dinner that they had gone down the, the uh, zip line seven times in one afternoon. Is there anybody here that can beat that? That have been down the zip line more than seven times in one afternoon? Miss Duffy here, yeah. How many times? How many? Nineteen times when you were littler. Okay. That's like two years ago or, or I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Okay. All right. When you were like, you were like 10 years old. All right. 19 times. So that's the camp record. I, well, I don't know that for a fact. I'm making that up, but it sounds like it could be the camp record. So surely there's somebody here that tomorrow is, can, can beat the, tomorrow can beat that uh, 19 times in one afternoon. It's not going to be me. I'll guarantee you. I don't think I can walk across the campground that many times and have any energy left to preach. And I think that's why they asked me to come. I don't think they invited me to ride the zip line 20 times. So I'm glad that you're enjoying the camp. We're enjoying the camp as well. And I'm glad that we can be together again tonight. Thanks, uh, Brother Tim, for this morning. Practical instruction from the Word. Um, great, great exposition of Song of Songs. Gutsy guy right there teaching through the Song of Songs. He asked me if I had ever done that. I said, nope. <laughs> 26 years as a pastor, never, never taught through the Song of Songs, but uh, good stuff. and appreciate your exposition of the text. Let's go tonight to Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at another parable, which remember, those are the everyday stories designed to confront us with everlasting truth. Everyday stories designed to confront us with everlasting truth. And not every one of my messages will be from a parable, but uh, tonight's is, and at least one more will be, Lord willing. If I stay true to what I told them, I would probably preach this week, unless the Lord leads me a different direction. But tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, and as I thought about this text and the conversation and then the story that is told here in this passage of Scripture, I couldn't help but think of a bumper sticker from the 1980s. And as I recall, I remember there being a little bit in front of it, but the, the, the gist of it was this, that life is a game. He who dies with the most toys wins. Do you remember that? Life is a game and he who dies with the most toys wins. That's actually attributed to Malcolm Forbes, a multi-millionaire, perhaps maybe even a billionaire. I don't know his exact net worth, but that's attributed to him, a man who probably lived that way. And in some ways, that phrase encapsulates what a lot of people think of when they think of the American dream. I'm afraid for us as Christians living in the United States of America, there may be a tendency for us to, yeah, reject that and, and, and not say, well, and not agree with that in terms of that's not the way we would want to live our lives. But the reality of the matter is this, that that mindset and even American materialism has probably saturated our lifestyles more than we care to admit. 
Notice we would not flat out say, yeah, that's a great motto to live by. You know, he who lives with or gets the most toys or uh, dies with the most toys wins. We wouldn't, we wouldn't embrace that. And yet there is a tendency for us to kind of live that way and to accumulate all kinds of stuff and to make getting more and better and bigger a, a bit of a way of life for us. I remember when we were moving to Ohio from Iowa, the Lord had called us the pastor there in uh, uh, Elyria, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. This would have been 11 years ago this summer. And so we, that was the first time that we actually made more of a cross-country move. God had always just moved us around Iowa, okay? Which moving from one place to another in-state is not nearly as complicated as moving that many miles away, almost 600 miles away. As a matter of fact, when we moved from Ankeny to Clarion, Iowa, when I pastored at Holmes Baptist Church, I remember they showed up with a stock trailer, Good farmers that show up at your house with their stock trailer. And the guy assured me, he's like, I, trust me, I spent hours power washing it. It no longer stinks like cattle. It's good. And I'm like, okay, fine. That's how we moved from Ankeny to Holmes Baptist Church. But that's not how we moved to Leary, Ohio. We, by that time, had four kids. Our oldest was about to go to college. And the others were either teenagers or preteens. And so you can imagine, the, 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 not only does the family get, did the family get bigger, but the family's stuff. Um, got a little more ex- expansive. And so when we went to pack that great big Penske van, that big, the biggest truck that you can rent and still drive yourself, it didn't all fit. And so here we were trying to figure out, well, how are we going to get the rest of it from Iowa all the way out to Ohio? We end up having to rent another trailer and get really creative with a number of things that could come later, that kind of stuff. And so I remember all the frustration going along with that. But then on top of it, we go to unpack and we're unloading on a Monday morning and a bunch of the people from the church showed up. One of them, one of my new deacons that I didn't really know, nor did I really know his sense of humor. (laughs) And so he's standing there with crossed arms as things are being unloaded out of the Penske truck and he says this, I don't suppose that your first sermon is going to be about materialism. Thankfully, I would find out that he was joking (laughs) because that was his sense of humor, that kind of dry humor. But at the time, I was like, "Uh, what am I supposed to say to that? (laughs) No, (laughs) it's not, obviously. (laughs) The reality of the matter, though, is that that was kind of a little bit of a prick to my heart in terms of conviction because I hadn't really thought about, you know what it's like, right? You just accumulate things and it gets stuffed in a closet or gets stuffed in a garage or... I mean, Americans are known for having more storage units than any other society in the world because of all the stuff that won't fit in all our other places. And Americans are even known for having three-car garages and all three cars sitting out in the driveway or on the street because of all the stuff, right? As some of you are looking at each other right now, like, yeah, right? And we do that probably without even really thinking about it, thinking about whether or not the American way of life ought to be the Christian way of life in light of the fact that life is what? It's more than a game. It's not a game where he who dies with the most toys wins or with the most stuff wins. In reality, it is far more than that. Truth be told, materialism is a temptation that all of us grapple with. Yet materialism is is not unique to to modern America. It was just as common 
in Jesus' day, but Jesus and the Bible don't use such benign terms as materialism. It's interesting, the two primary words that are used to describe what we're talking about tonight are the words greed and covetousness. And oftentimes, they, it depends on the translation, oftentimes the same Greek word is translated one place greed or greedy, another place covet or covetousness, but they're the same kind of idea. And that's what Jesus is warning about here in our text. And I want to jump into the middle of it and we'll come back and read it. But in the middle of our text here in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, take heed... And beware of, and again, it depends on your translation. My New King James Version says this, beware of covetousness. Some say greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. If you had not already read that verse of Scripture, and you heard Jesus say, beware, or, or look out, or you heard Jesus say, be on guard against, some horrible sin, or listen up and beware of the sin of, you fill in the blank, what would you have filled in the blank with? Right? It wouldn't have probably been greed. It probably would not have been covetousness. You know, if Jesus is going to warn us against some horrible sin, surely it's immorality, or maybe it's murder, or maybe it's drunkenness, or perhaps it's homosexuality, or maybe it's hatred, or racism, or something like that. But we probably wouldn't fill it in with greed, or covetousness. Why is that the case? I think it's the case because of this, because we fail to see the spiritual danger of covetousness because we fail to see it for the evil that it is. We fail to see it for the evil that it is. And I will use the terms covetousness and greed interchangeably throughout this message because that's what the Bible does. Depending, again, like I said, on your version and the context, those two words oftentimes are swapped back and forth. But covetousness or or fill in the blank with the word greed, either one, is simply this. It is the consuming desire for more. Later, the Bible will say in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, describing that in very specific terms. You think about it. The, the love of money or covetousness or greed is at the root of so much evil, both large-scale evil and small-scale evil, right? Large-scale evil in terms of what is happening today in, a, in the Ukraine. There's a war going on, right, in the Ukraine. What is that all about? What's at the root of it? What's at the root of it is greed. It's called Russia, and President Putin of Russia has decided that that Ukraine has all these resources that they want. And I know he can tell us all kinds of other things about why does he's doing this, and we all realize that's just you know, his version of the truth, but the reality of the matter is he, he wants what they have. And of course that's true of any, probably every war that's been fought that's not been noble in nature, is it's called one nation has decided they want what some other nation has, and so they attack to get that. And so Greed, covetousness is, is at the root of, of large-scale sin like that, but it has destroyed not just nations. Greed or covetousness or wanting what I want has also destroyed homes, small-scale, even marriages. And so it's one of the sins that, 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 on top of that, that also then motivated the very crucifixion of Jesus, 
I mean, think about it. What was happening? The Bible describes what was happening in the hearts and the lives of, of the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. They were afraid of what Jesus was going to do because they were going to lose what? They were going to lose their power, right? And if you lose your power, what else do you lose? The money that goes along with the power. So even the very crucifixion of Christ comes back to this as being one of the sins that was, in, that was lurking in the hearts of those who crucified Christ. And so Jesus commands us to be on guard against greed. He commands us to be on guard against greed and covetousness. And yet, how do we know what that looks like? How do we know what that looks like? I know my tendency is to think of it in terms of extremes. Even the word greed, when I hear the word greed, I think, well, that's not me. I'm not greedy. I try to be a generous and giving and kind person. And so that word doesn't describe me, surely. And so we tend to think of it in extreme cases. We tend to think of it of maybe there's this, this picture. I remember back in the day when I went through the, uh, the uh, uh, financial stewardship training with Larry Burkett. Any of you remember watching those VCR tapes back in the day? of Larry Burkett, and they, there was a picture of this miser, this old guy, looked like, a, like he'd come right off the Monopoly board, you know, and he's holding all this, there's like this big stack of money, you know, and he's miserly, and maybe that's what I, I have a mental tendency or mental picture of someone who's greedy like a miser, or maybe you, you picture someone that's a workaholic, you know, that is greedy, and so he, he, he or she works so many crazy hours because they just need to work more to get more and to get ahead, so maybe that's what you picture when you think of greedy, those types of extreme cases. Or maybe you think of some CEO, some really, really uh, important company that's making millions of dollars, seven figures, and, and he's greedy, and his only motivation is just to wring as much out of the company as he can so that the stocks go up, so that he makes more, so that he's successful. Maybe you think of somebody like that. That person's greedy. Or maybe you think of an extreme case like a gambler, someone who finds themselves going to, to a gambling establishment or maybe getting online and gambling and constantly gambling because they just want more. Perhaps you think of the Pharisees in terms of their greed, both for power and for money. And so we have a tendency to think of greed and covetousness in those types of terms, but the reality of the matter is this, is that same exact propensity is lurking in every one of our hearts. It's lurking in every one of our hearts. And so that is why Jesus says, beware. Take heed of the sin of greed. Guard against greed. Let's look at the entire passage together tonight before we look at what, what I will uh, point out are five characteristics of a greedy person that I think are described in our, our text. Begin reading with me. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, where the Bible says this, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he has said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this, and I will put, pull down my barns, and I will build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, 
You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, this account of this interaction between Jesus and someone who wanted him to settle this inheritance issue. And then this parable that Jesus told that is designed to teach us about eternal, everlasting truths that do indeed confront us with our own heart issues, with our own tendency to fit the mold of American culture when it comes to stuff, with our own tendency to to love stuff and find meaning from stuff instead of being wealthy and rich toward you. So I pray, Lord, that you would use this, this passage of Scripture to speak to each of our hearts and that each of us will look in our hearts for the motives that drive us and motivate us lest they be wrong motives, that we might have motives that are eternal in nature because life truly is so much more than a game. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Notice with me tonight five characteristics of a greedy person as they're described by the Lord Jesus in this passage of Scripture. First of all, a greedy person focuses their life on material things. We have described for us here in verses 13 through 15, Jesus is teaching to to a crowd. If you were to go back to chapter 12, the first verse, it says this, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples. And so that gives you a little bit of of the setting, that gives you a little bit of the scenery, what's going on here. Jesus is teaching publicly, and there are probably thousands of people, so much so that they're clamoring to get as close to Jesus as they possibly can. They want to make sure they can hear him. They'd love to be able to also see him. They want to know what it is that Jesus has to say. And so you can imagine Jesus is teaching with that kind of crowd all around him, and all of a sudden, perhaps as Jesus takes a breath, maybe as Jesus pauses, all of a sudden some dude in the crowd, doesn't even raise his hand, just simply blurts out and says what is described for us in verse 13 when it says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Can you imagine the gall interrupting the Lord Jesus in that manner because you had something that you thought was more important than what Jesus had to say? I can imagine the disciples thinking, how did that dude get this close to Jesus? Where did he come from? What in the world is he doing? And yet, Jesus uses that inappropriate, perhaps, moment to teach, as Jesus was the master of doing. He uses it to teach them about something very important. And part of why it was out of place was because it was very revealing. You see, Jesus was pointing people toward the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was trying to get people's eyes off of their stuff, off of their temporal lives. And this guy interrupted Jesus, not even to ask him, did you notice the verbiage that's used here? He, he interrupted him to tell him. He tells Jesus what to do. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He doesn't even say please. Doesn't even ask. He has the gall to simply tell Jesus what 
to do. Set, tell my brother to settle the estate with me. It's important, I think, for us to understand the cultural context. Again, context sheds light on the text. And so as we study the scriptures, it's always great to be able to understand the context so we better understand the text, the text of the word of God. And so the cultural context was this, that the firstborn brother was given the, the position of the executor of an estate. So this is not the firstborn brother that's speaking, it's a younger brother that is speaking. And the firstborn brother also, as a result of being the firstborn, received a double portion of the inheritance. And so apparently the older brother is dragging his feet. The text doesn't tell us why. The text doesn't tell us what's going on, but if some of you have ever been a part of a, an estate being, being settled, you know how complicated it can get with family. We've had people that I've ministered to as a pastor that, you know, they're part of an unsaved family and, and a farm is, ends up being a part of that inheritance and when the elder generation passes away and, oh boy, knock down, drag out to figure out what to do with the farm. And so maybe it was something like that that's going on here, but he says, you know, make my brother settle the estate with me. Maybe the brother wanted to keep the estate in one piece. Maybe he wanted to do something different with it. We don't know that. But it's important to understand that the younger brother didn't just want Jesus to hear the case. He didn't want Jesus just to hear the case. He wanted Jesus to settle the case and to rule in his favor. Basically what this guy is saying is take my side against my brother. Help me out financially. And again, why is this out of line? Well, it's out of line because it revealed something about the man, his focus. His focus, even when it came to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was material in nature. That's all he thought of when he thought about this man, Jesus, that might be the Messiah, is maybe this guy can help me out financially. Leon Wood comments about it in this way. He says, he came to bring, referring to Jesus, Jesus came to bring men to God, not property to men. And by the way, does that make you think a little bit about some of the theology of the day and age in which we live? The whole health and wealth gospel is focused on the fact that people think that Jesus came to make us rich. Jesus came to make us well. And the focus of Jesus, the focus of that Messiah, is not really eternal life. It's, it's material life. It's life here on this planet instead of focusing on life in heaven. I would, I would also venture that other Christians that may not be health and wealth Christians might think in similar ways also when they think or maybe even have a tendency to pray like, okay, God, if I obey you, will you bless me? If I do this or if I do that, God, you're kind of obligated to do this or to do that, and maybe it's even material in nature, and so this guy's totally out of line with this request. And so that's why we see then, the, secondly, the response as it's described for us there in verses 14 and 15. And then Jesus says to him, man, who made me a judge? Who made me a judge or, or an arbitrator over you? And that's when then Jesus makes that powerful statement in verse 15. So Jesus responds to him by, if I can just paraphrase it very loosely, you've got the wrong guy. And again, cultural context. Rabbis often did this type of stuff. Rabbis were, were known, that was one of the things that they would often do was settle disputes. But that wasn't Jesus' reason for coming. Jesus was very pointed in his statement. He, he uses very specific verbiage when he says, take heed or watch out, beware. Both of those statements would have put the spotlight on the next thing that Jesus was about to say. Take heed. Beware, everyone's listening. And Jesus says what? One's life 
does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Life isn't about stuff. Like I said earlier, some translations don't use the word covetousness. Some use the, words, the word greed. Dave Harvey describes it in this way when speaking about covetousness. I think this is a, a pertinent quote that, that, that is worth repeating. He said this, Coveting is desiring stuff too much or desiring too much stuff. Did you catch that? It's desiring stuff too much or desiring too much stuff. And then he goes on, he continues in his statement about this. He says this, the sin of covetousness is not that we have stuff, it's that our stuff has us. I mean, think about that. Even just as you live your life, I know I have a tendency to find myself busying myself with stuff. Busying myself with, man, now I gotta take care of this and it's material. Now I gotta take care of that and it's material. Now I gotta take care of this. And, it, and so much of my time is consumed by the stuff and the stuff may have me. Go with me for a second to, to first few seconds to Colossians chapter three. Because I think this, again, strengthens the case for the seriousness of covetousness. When you find this description in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, about covetousness. As I said earlier, when Jesus was you know, making the statement, beware, take heed, and he's going to tell something really important, the tendency would be for us to not fill in the blank with the sin of covetousness because we have a tendency to not think of it as being that serious of a sin. But look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5, where the Bible describes the, the works of the flesh, the things we're to put to death. Colossians 3, 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, that's sexual immorality, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and then what's the next word? And covetousness. But then notice what the text says about that, which is what? It's idolatry. It's worshiping stuff. When stuff becomes so important to us that it crowds out our relationship with Christ, that it crowds out serving Christ, that it crowds out even our, our, our passions for the things of God, where it crowds out even what we think about in terms of it becoming the primary focus, things becoming the primary focus of our life, what is it that it becomes? It becomes an idol. Covetousness, which is idolatry, is when material things captivate our hearts. Which, of course, then means what? That covetousness preys on all of us. The temptation preys on all of us. No matter our income level or our economic status, we have a tendency, like I said, to think of this being a rich person problem. But what were most of the people in Jesus' day? They were poor. The vast majority of the people in the nation of Israel were poor, and some of them were very poor. So covetousness is more a matter of attitude then it is a matter of amount. The poorest person can be greedy. And the wealthiest person can be content. And so coming full circle back to what is being described here in, in, in Luke, when he could have and should have been asking a question, this man that comes to him, when he could have and should have been asking Jesus a question of eternal consequence, he told Jesus to get his inheritance for him. And so his life was totally focused on the temporal and the material. My question for all of us is this, is ours. 
I want to take a few moments by way of application tonight to think about some, if I'm going to put it this way, some materialistic or a materialistic mindset, a materialistic mindset. So how is it that a person that is materialistic thinks and maybe even acts? Number one, the materialistic mindset is this, that material, material matters consume much of your thought life. Material matters consume much of your thought life. Stop for a second and think about that. When you have free time just to think, what is the focus of those thoughts? Is it material things, stuff, or financial success, or is it eternal in nature? The rich fool had been thinking about this, or he would not have been so brash. In other words, it was in the forefront of his mind, or he wouldn't have asked Jesus this. So material matters consume much of your thought life. Number two, a materialist is like this. You view relationships as opportunities for financial gain. Again, that's what he did, right? It was all about financial gain, how he viewed Jesus. Number three, you measure your success in life by your position or your possessions. As you think about what, what, you, what you would consider successful, I want to be successful. That will mean that I need to have this position or even these possessions to be successful. And then fourthly, you value others by their perceived success. Your perceived success. Psychologists tell us that one of the reasons that, that people have a tendency to ask other people what their job is, and men are especially guilty of this, Psychologists tell us that one of the reasons we do that is because then we create a mental pecking order. And maybe it's even subconscious in nature in terms of what it is that person does, how much money they probably make, and whether or not I'm inferior or superior to them. And that's a materialist mindset that feeds that. Instead of seeing people as created in the image of God and if they're believers, brothers or sisters in Christ. And so material mindset could be described in these four ways and perhaps others as well. The question I would ask all of us is this, does that describe me? Does that describe you? And so a person whose life is materialistic is someone who focuses life, their life on material things. Secondly, this person is never content. They're never content. And then we get into the rest of the text of Scripture where Jesus begins to t tell this parable in verses 16 through 18. We read it already, so I won't reread all of it. But let me just point out some things because Jesus, again, he's illustrating by telling a story. He's telling a parable. First of all, you notice the description. Verse 16 describes him being, being a wealthy man, but that wasn't the problem. The fact that he was a certain rich man whose fields yielded bountifully was not the problem. Being rich is not the problem. It's not the problem. But he had a dilemma. Notice what it says in verse 17. The dilemma was that he had too much in terms of crops and what the crops had yielded. He didn't have enough bins to put all the crops in. And so he was, he was stuck with this, okay, what am I going to do with all these crops? What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Verse 17. So that's the dilemma. But then thirdly, first of all, you see the description. Secondly, the dilemma. Thirdly, the difference. And this is the key to the understanding the text. The key is this. The difference is that his total focus was on himself. Did you notice when I read the text, I emphasized a word as I was reading these next verses? There's a word that I emphasized as I read it. It was the word I. 
Because as you look at the passage of Scripture, it was all about him. As a matter of fact, I is found five times in these two verses. I, I, I've circled it in my Bible. What shall I do since I have no room? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and there I will store up more crops, and I will say to my soul. So it's all about him. So the difference in terms of our understanding of the text, the problem with, with, this, with this man that is used here, or described here, is that life was all about him. He wasn't content. Rather than thinking in terms of what he could do to help others with his abundance, all he could think about was himself. Himself. Why is that the case? Because when you have this mindset, enough is never enough. Enough is never enough. One person put it this way, you will never be content with what God will give you tomorrow until you are content with what he has given you today. Think about that for a second. You will never be content with what God will give you tomorrow until you are content with what God has given you today. Because that's our focus, isn't it, when we're not content? We're hoping God gives us more in the future when he's given us enough today. Or as Henry David Thoreau put it, actually this is a paraphrase of him, quote, a man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can live without. He's rich in proportion to the number of things he can live without. So we see the description. Number two, we see the dilemma. Thirdly, we see the difference. And so what is the answer? What's the answer? The answer is to move from I and me and mine to you or to they or to them, I should say. In other words, the the answer is to move away from from selfishness and focusing life on, on, on accumulating more, bigger bins, and giving more. Or to put it this way, simply, the great antidote for, for greed is giving. Giving is the great antidote for greed. I don't know if you read uh, Randy Alcorn, but I thoroughly enjoy just about everything that Randy Alcorn has, has written And in one of his books on this topic, he kind of grabbed my attention in terms of financial resources and giving. It was a book on giving. He said, you know, the American tendency is when we get a a raise or or maybe a better job that significantly changes our our financial income, the the tendency is for for the American to change their standard of living. You know, all of a sudden, whoa, I got a I got a big raise or I got a new job and maybe even a new career, so we're moving to a bigger house and getting nicer cars and wearing nicer clothes or whatever it might look like for the average American. But he, he said this. He said the following. Why don't we raise our standard of giving rather than our standard of living? Why don't we raise our standard of giving rather than our standard of living? Now, I know, I understand that if you give a percentage of your income, if, you're, if your income goes up, you're going to give more because you're giving a percentage of your income, but he's not saying that. How about what he's saying is, why wouldn't we just cap our standard of living and give the rest to God? Have you ever thought about that? One of the things he made me think about, and he didn't state this necessarily in that book, but you know, you, you start to think about ideas that are introduced to you in books, and then you meditate on those and start to compare those to Scripture. And so one of the thoughts that came to my mind in relationship to that was that I wonder if Christians view giving as something off-limits when it comes to progressive sanctification. What, what do I mean by that? Well, if, if you are a strict tither, okay, 
In other words, if you're a person who gives just 10% of your, your, your earning, and, and maybe you started doing that years ago, and, and that's, that's what you've given since you realized the importance of that, how have you grown? And I know, I, I understand the New Testament, I think, teaches grace giving, which I don't think is less than 10%. I think if truly we are recipients of God's abundant grace, grace giving ought to be more than 10%. I think a Christian, like the bare minimum ought to be 10% for a recipient of the grace of God. But if we understand that then, if we are truly grace givers and we're growing in sanctification, which what's, what's that? Growing in sanctification means that I'm growing to be more like Jesus Christ and less like my old sinful self. In other words, I'm growing in my obedience to Christ. So if we really believe in progressive sanctification, shouldn't we as Christians be growing in terms of even the very percentage of what we give to God? You can disagree with me on that, okay? But that's part of what God just did in my own heart and even in our own lives. I mean, I started tithing as a, as a teenager. Again, Larry Burkett got me, Right? And so I started tithing as a teenager, but I had better be doing a lot more than 10% as someone who's walked with God for three decades since then. Don't you think? And yet the average Christian in the average Baptist church doesn't even give 10%. The national average, they say, is that the Christians give about 2%. How sad. What an indictment against believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And I would hope someone that takes values a family camp like this, that you're not the average Christian in, in the average church in America. I realize that. But at the same time, as you think about stuff, as you think about giving, is giving an area in your life where you've allowed God to grow you and to stretch you so that you're willing to give sacrificially. Sacrificially. In other words, giving to the point that it might even be hard. It might even hurt to give. And yet, it causes you to trust God. And after all, isn't that good for our sanctification? When we let go of stuff and let God do that kind of work in our hearts. And so giving is the great antidote. It's the great antidote for greed. If we are truly content with what God gives us, we ought to be willing and eager to give more to him. It's never content. Thirdly, thirdly, this type of greed finds primary satisfaction and security or security and satisfaction in immaterial things. Look at verse 19 and the way this individual is described in verse 19. And I will say to my soul... Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat and drink, and be merry. Life's good. You've got everything you need, right? Life is good. And so his satisfaction, number one, his, his perspective, I, I'll have goods for many years is what he does, does to describe himself. I'm set. I'm secure. Financial independence. Everything's fine. It doesn't get any better than this. And then his plan is described, not just his perspective, number one. His plan, number two, live life, take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You find satisfaction in that. So you see the combination here of security and satisfaction and true happiness is what he's describing here in his perspective and in his plan. So what's the balance for us? 
right? What's the balance for us as Bible-believing Christians? And I won't take the time to expand on all these. I'm going to presume you already know most of them, but it's good for us to review. So as we think about stuff and finances and those kinds of things, what is the biblical balance? Number one, it's to work hard. The Bible makes that very clear, that if we don't provide for our own, we're worse than unbelievers. And so every Christian, the Christians ought to be the hardest working people at work. It really ought to be. We ought to work hard. Number two, we ought to provide for our family. And that, again, that's emphasized there in 1 Timothy 5, 8. Number three, we're to give generously. We've already talked about that. Number four, we're to avoid debt. I won't go that, down that whole tra- trail, okay, in terms of, of the con- amount of consumer debt in America and especially among American Christians, how much they owe Number five, we got to save for the future. Proverbs 6 speaks of the, the ant and how he saves up for the future. And even retirement, I think, is taught in that concept. So we're to plan and provide for the future, but we're not to make that our source of security. And that's why we say number six is never place your faith in your savings. Never place your, your security, your faith in material things. After all, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, not our savings account. So the biblical balance for us is is we find security and satisfaction in life. It's in our relationship with Christ. It's not in our bank account or the things that we have. So materialist is someone who finds primary security and satisfaction in material things. Number four, a materialist is someone who gives little thought to eternal accountability Sounds a lot like what we studied yesterday. Notice what it says there in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, fool. Gary Enrig makes the following comment about that. He says this, high on the list of hurtful names is the word fool, especially when it is used by God. To be a fool in God's eyes is to have missed the point of life. The remarkable thing is that the person God calls a fool, we would often call a success, a person to be envied. Did you catch that? So God calls him a fool, and yet in our society, somebody like this, this successful guy, we'd have a tendency to exalt as the guy to follow in the footsteps of. That's not God's opinion of him. Ultimately, a fool is one who lives as if God doesn't exist or God doesn't matter. That's how this man lived his life. I, me, my, more, bigger bins. It's all about me and how much more successful I can be. So the conclusion is, God's conclusion is that he's a fool, but the consequence is also described there in verse 20. Your soul will be required of you. His soul would be separated from his body and he would stand before God. It's interesting that Jesus followed up by saying, and then who will get the stuff that was so important to you? Isn't that interesting? Jesus points him back to, he he doesn't mention hell specifically like, like was mentioned in the previous text yesterday that we studied. Instead, he appealed to the only thing that really mattered to this man. Then who's gonna do what with all your stuff? (laughs) Which we all know, the older we grow, we know what our kids are gonna do with all of our stuff, right? Throw it away, Right? Because most of it, they don't care. My, my parents are aging, by the way, and we're facing that day with them of throwing it all away. We will, we will have to put large dumpsters in front of their houses. I know that sounds brutal, but it's a reality. 
But, but Jesus makes that point here because he's pointing him to the fact that that isn't what really matters. The Bible's very specific when it says this. It says it's appointed unto man, what? Once to die and after this, what? The judgment. And much like yesterday, we pointed out everyone needs to be ready for that judgment. If you don't know Christ is your Savior, the judgment is the great white throne judgment. If you don't know Christ is your Savior, that means eternity in the lake of fire. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, even as that was described for us tonight in this drama, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ to avoid the judgment of hell and to have the forgiveness of sins and to have the eternal life that Christ alone could provide as the one that was the sinless sacrifice and substitute for you on Calvary's cross. And so judgment is ahead, but for us as Christians, it's the judgment seat of Christ where we will or will not receive award, rewards for the things that we have done in the body, the Bible says, in relationship even to financial things. And so this man, a materialist, gave no thought for the destiny of his soul. May that not be the case for us as believers in Christ. And then finally, a materialist is someone who fails to lay up treasures in heaven. Verse 21 plainly states that when it says this, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The problem was simply this. He laid up treasures for himself. The issue wasn't, again, wasn't, the issue was not that he was wealthy. It was his attitude toward the wealth. It was all about him. All about him. Two things I think we can observe about him. He failed to recognize who had made him wealthy in the first place. Interesting verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. It says this, that we are to remember the Lord our God for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. In other words, the very health that you have, the very ability you have to earn a living, that's not you. <laughs> it's God. And so he failed to even see that the fact that he could earn a living was a gift from God. He failed to see that. He didn't recognize that. But secondly, he didn't understand what, what real treasure is. Real treasure is found in what we store up in heaven. By doing everything we can, as we talked about yesterday, with the time and the treasures and the talents that God has given to us. I remember reading a story that Erwin Lutzer wrote in a book about holiness. The book was entitled, How in the World Can I Be Holy? And he tells a story of two thieves who stole some things from a store, but then also played a practical joke. Back in the day before you know, everything was on you know, barcodes and scanned and all that kind of stuff, they took all the price tags off of everything and they switched all the price tags around in the store. And the store owner didn't realize it. And people came in and started buying things that were of great value for pennies on the dollar and swapping all, all these things that had been swapped around. And this is what Erwin Lutzer says about that. He's, he concludes, what is worldliness? He says, it is living with warped values. At its worst, it is assigning value to what God totally condemns. At its best, it is rearranging the price tags to suit our fancy. It is rejecting God's priorities for our own. Rearranging the price tags. This man traded true treasure for trivial trinkets. And I wonder at times if we don't do the same. His problem, and then finally his poverty. He wasn't rich toward God. How can you be rich toward God? Well, number one, salvation. You can be rich to every one of us who knows Jesus Christ and, and we're, his children are heirs. 
what a wonderful thing that is. And so salvation makes you rich toward God. Service makes you rich toward God. We don't have time to go into it, but verses 29 through 31, talk about that. It's all about that. Verse 31, we, we know, we usually we quote it from Matthew, but verse 21 is what? Seek first the kingdom of God. So how can you be rich toward God? Is serve him. How can you be rich toward God? Share with others, verses 32 through 34. Same text, read it on your own. Teaches that, sharing it, and that's that whole idea of giving is the great antidote for greed. I think our tendency is to dismiss a message like this, to think of it in extreme examples rather than to think of it in terms of are these the issues that are lurking in my own heart? So let me ask you a few questions as we close. What is your life focus? Is it on more? Is it on better and bigger and maybe even easier once you have enough money, quote, unquote? Is what God has given you enough? Remember, you will never be content tomorrow if you're not content today. Where do you find your real satisfaction, your real happiness, your real security? What would you have to have to show, or what would you have to show for your life if you stood before the Lord tonight? Are you storing up treasures in heaven? Are you truly rich toward God? Life is so much more. It's so much more than a game. Don't fall prey to greed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. I pray that while we've covered a lot of material and a lot of principles, that the heart of it would not be left or lost on us, that, that we would understand the significance of wanting our lives to count for that which is eternal and wanting our lives to just focus on, on people and on, on, on you and on souls and on serving you rather than the things of this world. Do the work that your spirit wants to do in our hearts to change us and grow us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.